Today's businesses are on a vigilant watch for threats in an ongoing cyber war. It's time to get real-world solutions to protect and secure your valuable business information anytime, anywhere. Welcome to Cybersecurity America with Josh Nicholson. You're about to gain special access into a world of restricted information and a backstage pass to the inner sanctum of cybersecurity operations. Here's your host, Joshua Nicholson. So welcome to the show. Joshua Nicholson here. You ever really wanted to know what is a backstage pass? What is going on behind the scenes, giving you insight to what's important, what's not, how difficult actually something is? Well, I got really interested in that as uh, several years ago when I went to go see the movie. I went to go see the backstage Broadway production of Wicked was really impressed by the not just the actors and actresses and how much time they put into there, but the, just the stagecraft it took, the ability to move stages in and out, the ability to coordinate different scenes and lightings and, and move it around dynamically and be um, aware of how they're interfacing with the rest of uh, with the rest of the audience. And I thought it was just so intricate and so talented that these people are the ones that should be getting these awards. I also saw when I was in the Marine Corps and I was I, I did an operation in Korea and I was on guard duty, there was this uh, opportunity where a commanding officer uh, was briefed by another uh, colonel in the Army, and they asked if I wanted to go along, go into this top-seeker bunker, get to see where the out installations of the of the Army was, where's our protective measures at, where the uh, what is the radar signature that's happening right there in that area. It was a, it was a complete backstage pass to the defense of the Korean Peninsula. Ever since then, I've been fascinated with uh, being able to understand how things work, how things run. So in the cybersecurity world here, I've been doing cybersecurity for about 24 years. I started off in the Marine Corps as a young 18-year-old, spent five years doing communication electronics and as a weapons instructor, in which computer systems started coming on, on online. Uh, when I first started in computers, they had uh, DOS 6.2 was the first operating system that was out there. There was no UI. There was no Windows 3.1.1 was revolutionary at the time. So just seeing kind of the the light years we've gone from that time period of not even having a UI for an operating system all the way to where we are now is just an amazing time. So in the world of cybersecurity, I'm lucky enough to do uh, cybersecurity for some of the biggest companies in the world. We do several different things. I've been doing uh, cyber incident response, security engineering, security architecture, um, helping with risk assessments, analyzing assets. So we're doing a lot of this stuff. And what I wanted to be able to do as a part of this show is give kind of that backstage pass to what's it like to run cybersecurity in some of the largest organizations in the world. How What does good look like? What does uh, mediocre look like? And what is really horrible type uh, a, a cybersecurity setup looks like? Now, we thought that um, this was a great opportunity to kind of uncover some of the why we do what we do types things. Very similar if you read a 10K on a company. You can go a publicly trade company, download their 10K, and I can see the earnings per share. I can see a lot of these different markers that indicate some kind of um, financial health. Uh, the problem is I have no idea if that earnings per share is good for a company of that size. Is their debt to income ratio good for this size? There's no really way to judge these factors without some kind of back-end knowledge and what that means. And that's what we hope to be able to bring out and to solve. Not only do we want to highlight different um, 
uh, risk areas that are important and that you should focus on. But we also want to be able to provide insight into how you go about evaluating um, a SIM system, for instance, how do you evaluate EDR in the enterprise? How do you look in, at intrusion detection? What frameworks should you look at? That kind of stuff. We want to be able to provide some insight into multiple uh, different areas related to that. If we look at um, what are some of the benefits of being able to do this and to be able to pull these different pieces and parts out? Well, it gives a really good insight on where your program should be. If your program is not operating it the way that it should be, or you notice key components are missing, this is where it can highlight those and get you to answer, uh, answer some of those questions. I also like the ability to get experts to come on our show and to be able to explain what their experience has been with different forms of technology or different risk management uh, philosophies. I think it's important to get their perspective and debate and to be able to, to cover some of those areas. So for instance, we cover, this show is gonna have a format where in general, we'll have that first column that we talk about, which would be uh, control validation. This is where we talk about penetration testing, breach attack simulation, red teaming, uh, code reviews, that kind of stuff. The second major tower uh, that, that we really focus on really is detection analytics. Is how are you writing detection analytics? What platforms are best to do this? How do you how do you structure this in an enterprise? Then as well as how do you structure this in a small business? How do you do detection analytics um, in, a, in a small enterprise and on a budget? As well as the threat hunting that may came, uh, come part of that as part of post-exploitation. So after that, we move more into the realm of uh, security architecture and engineering. This is where we start to talk about cloud security patterns, how things have changed from incident response uh, when you're doing it on-prem to how does that change now? You have to do it in cloud. And what access do you have? What access don't you have? How things have become a little bit more challenging. We tie into... Uh, a lot of that to understand what are the different architectures for OOT, for operations, uh, things uh, such as manufacturing environments, which work, which ones are not, which what are different methods that you ought to consider when you're doing that. Uh, we also get into implementation, uh, you know, which products have we heard or different solutions are harder to implement? Is there an easier way to scan that? What have been some of your concerns? Uh, what are some areas or some gaps we know that still exist, even though you have that? Then we talk a little bit about incident response. That's our next uh, pillar, that fourth pillar, where we do we talk about IR run support. How do you support incident response function within an organization? How do you consult in one? What are the different areas from doing a current state, future state roadmap uh, to what some of the use cases look like? We also talk about IR retainers in the enterprise and in the small business. What does it mean to break glass and get people with suitcases to, to fly in to be able to handle some of these and to recover um, when you're having an incident. We also talk about um, tabletop exercises, how to formulate those, how to structure those, how to work with the business. And, and those tabletop exercises, really, how do you get the business to coordinate with technology and information security into a seamless manner? I think those are always a, a good topic to cover. Um, threat intelligence, both tactical and strategic, very important to um, what we do in, in cybersecurity and what we do uh, with the company I work with. And we really want to focus on some of those different services. What does it mean? What does good look like? Um, on each of these podcasts, we definitely want to be able to have an Intel briefing. So to be able to explain what's the latest threats, what you should focus on. A lot of that, folk, uh, that a lot of that gets pivoted right into what we call an attack, attack surface reduction uh, type function where you have vulnerability management, threat intelligence all together. 
And then taking that from advisory and compliance to data science, to data analytics, automation, and reporting. So hopefully we'll have a lot of great topics to cover. Uh, we'll have a lot of interesting guests uh, to be able to discuss different areas of risk and, and different ways that they're looking at it. And then hopefully uh, later on, we'll have other sections or have different um, series in which we get into personal development. A lot, one of my passions really is tying into that how do I move from being a manager to executive? When I when I did that, there's a, a lot of different areas of improvement, a lot of different areas to focus on. And I think it's important for some of our listeners to understand what that is and how can they continue to drive and move forward for self-improvement and how did that work in the um the larger the larger space of the cybersecurity world. Now, the first uh the first topics here, I want to first of all, I want to introduce you my guest. Uh his name is Joshua Neal. And Joshua is currently the, um, let me read his bio and make sure I get this right here, uh, because it's pretty extensive. So Josh is a PhD statistician with over 20 years of data science experience. He's a chief data scientist at Securonix. Uh, Dr. Neil most recently served as the data science leader for Microsoft Defender uh, for Endpoint and Microsoft 365 Defender products. Prior to Microsoft, uh, Dr. Neil worked at uh, Ernst & Young, where he built their cyber data anomaly detect. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, we worked their cited data science capabilities delivering cutting edge anomaly detection of Fortune 500 climates globally. Proceeding EY, Dr. Neal spent 15 years working as a principal investigator at Los Alamos National Laboratories, building out a reputation as high quality researcher. He's got over a thousand citations and patents and research and development of 100 awards for his development of PathScan. I remember that application well. And PathScan was a network anomaly detection tool that was licensed and commercialized um, by Ernst & Young. So welcome to the show, Josh. How are you doing today? Oh, great, Josh. Thanks for thanks for having me. Uh, first of all, it's an honor to be one of your first guests. And uh, second, it's just great to talk to another Josh. Uh, so yeah. good, good to be here today. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Well, what a busy, uh, busy year. Now, did I cover everything that you have going on? I know I did a quick bio of your background and so forth, but uh, I remember when I was talking to you when you were at Microsoft and you were explaining the petaflops worth of data that you were that mm. ingesting and all. So uh, did I cover all the areas of responsibility that you have? Yeah, I think you did pretty well. Um, um, I think I have, you know, kind of three three takeaways from that resume. One is that I have the research experience and, and government and intelligence community work uh, with Los Alamos. And then I have the managed security service providing uh, and consulting uh, experience from Ernst & Young, followed by the product development um, experience, uh, cyber product development experience at Microsoft and now at Securonix. That's a short summary. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. And and Josh and I first worked together. My background is similar. I've been in cybersecurity for about 24 years uh, on the infrastructure side, incident response. And I was working at Ernst & Young when I first met Josh. And EMY was uh, um, using PathScan, the application he helped develop in order to find anomalies. And, and so later on, you can go over a little bit more about PathScan. But uh, Josh, what, what a phenomenal uh, year this has been, just with celebrity vulnerabilities, and you have Log4j, and uh, you have SolarWinds, and just a, no a number of these different uh, things. So um, what was your take on this last year and, and all the challenges we've had? Well, I've, yeah, I've, I think it was a significant uptick in um, sophistication uh, and some really high-profile breaches. Um, the Log4j thing was 
it's just so pervasive. Log4j is everywhere. Um, and, you know, it's a fairly straightforward vulnerability, but, but the extent to which Log4j, you know, pervades software in the enterprise, I think was the, the real challenge with that one. With SolarWinds, um, that was quite a sophisticated attack. Uh, not only was the intrusion vector quite quite good, you know, they penetrated SolarWinds and then used a patch update to get into a bunch of companies. That's fantastic tradecraft. You have to respect how they got in. But then once they were in, uh, the the kill chain, you know, the level of sophistication of the behaviors they did, crossing from on-prem to cloud and back again, um, you know, that that human-operated attack after the initial penetration through the supply chain was quite sophisticated, really, you know, on the level of Stuxnet, um, when that was, you know, when that was uh, really cutting edge, this, this was right. um, quite uh, sophisticated. And we, I was at Microsoft at the time, we learned a lot from the adversaries um, due to that, due to that attack. The exchange server one is another one where, um, you know, that was a, a very thinner, serious penetration. Um, uh, and, and obviously I was at Microsoft at the time and, um, you know, I, uh, I probably shouldn't say a whole lot about that, even though I don't work at Microsoft anymore. I know stuff that would probably be, uh, uh damaging there. So I, I don't want to reveal much about my thoughts about exchange server, the exchange server attack other than, yeah, nasty, nasty attack. So overall, you know, if I compare this with, say, 2021 um, or, or earlier years, this is a significant year last year in terms of attacks, the pervasiveness of them and the sophistication of them. Mm. Yeah, and it seems that, that it always seems to take you off guard. All of a sudden, uh, you have a major vulnerability and you're spending nights and weekends trying to patch for it. I remember one of the problems we had, we, we do cybersecurity for some very large uh, pharmaceuticals. And one of they had is log4j was just prevalent in their environment. Uh, we were told that different vi binaries were vulnerable when uh, or were fixed when they're not. Uh, you go to testament production, they were still vulnerable. So it, it seemed to be a real challenge just to get into what was safe, what wasn't with log4j. Uh, and just remediation seemed to just really be a slog. Is, is that would that be fair to say? I would say it's still going on. And and people are still remediating, and I I agree. It's it's the uh, you know the pervasiveness of it and the complexity of it is is it's hard to fix, you know. And and I think companies are still look. I think there's com companies out there that don't know that they still have vulnerabilities. They haven't done enough remediation with Log4j. I think it's still an attack vector right. to worry about. Yeah, and, and I think one of the things about Log4j that um, we had noticed, it was just a much more difficult uh, thing to detect. I mean, network intrusion detection systems, some of your architecture just wasn't set up right, really to remediate yeah. something uh, like that. And I think it was just difficult to wrap their hands around it first to try and figure out what we're supposed to do about it. Is this normally just a patch job or is it a, a configuration on the service too as well? And so I think it really uh, focused on not just having regular incident response processes, but also having like celebrity vulnerability management and a C-cert that, that we would do. So with the company I work for is Deep Seas, and we were a spin out from Booz Allen Hamilton uh, and merged together. 
And so we spun out into a new uh, company. And one of the things that we do that was real important was we do a tax surface reduction. So it's it's understanding vulnerability management, um, but understanding their risks from a threatened, informed uh, perspective. And I think sometimes some of these vulnerabilities like um, like Log4j kind of come under the under the first the premise of just patch management and they don't really realize the impact to it. Um, there isn't really a risk dimension to it if it's just from a vulnerability management perspective. Um, so I think it became a challenge and sometimes to quantify to leadership management how bad this could be. And I think that kind of slowed things down in, in some cases. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I agree. And I, you know, I, I, the lesson I extract from this also solar winds. And in fact, I kind of have been extracting the same lesson for much of my career is what else happened? What else is going on that'll allow you, not in the mitigation space, but in the in the detection space, um, you know, there were follow-on behaviors past the compromise. The the adversary is not just trying to compromise log4j. They're trying to get your data. They're trying to ransom it, and mm-hmm. they have to do a lot of different things in order to 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 take advantage of the exploit. Right. So. You know, I'm always looking for what happened around the log4j, what happened around the around the stuff we know about mm-hmm. to fully flesh out and 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 cut down on false positives and and um, um, context and additional signals to help me understand you know the threat and where it's at right now and where it's going next. Yeah, well, I think one of the 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 biggest impact it had really is those companies that have uh, thin supply chains and what's the threat that solar winds played to that and log4j and how do the supply chains get impacted by it so it's not just the impact to you but how did your third party get impacted how does it what what critical parts does that third party processor do for you um so it gets really complicated in these these really um long supply chains and 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 i guess one time it's it's hard to really inventory what you have sometimes to understand your exposure right I think there's an opportunity for um, some kind of consortium, some kind of maybe of actual startup, which is focused in assessing risk in the supply chain and which can track down and enumerate not only your 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 children, your your uh, first party providers, but their providers. And and going all the way down to the origins of the technology, however, you're getting the you know the supply, um, in order to quantify risk all the way up and down that that supply chain. Yeah, uh, you know, solar winds is is part of it, right? But then before solar winds, their providers, and maybe solar winds is the wrong example because that was directly a penetrating solar winds network in order to distribute the 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 uh, the attack. Uh, or the malicious software, but the, mm. but in, in many of these, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's deep in the supply chain where the risk is and a big company, you know, having to understand that uh, it's very difficult. It's very deep. It's, it can go all the way down to a mom and pop shop in, in Brooklyn, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's putting together a circuit board or something, you know, it's, it's can be very hard for big companies to have that visibility. I think there's an opportunity here for some for some consortium or some kind of uh, uh, technology to get in in the game and help people understand their full supply chain risk. I yeah. don't think we're done with that yet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you see the colonial pipeline attack, and and you see that 
there's a lot of comp- companies, corporations that didn't want to invest in their infrastructure, especially in the OT side. They just figure it's old. We'll put it behind a firewall. Uh, we don't need to upgrade that. Or there's a merger and acquisition and and they try to save some dollars. Why not uh, being able to get rid of that older equipment and then have a standardized homogeneous approach? They feel that they can feather in the older stuff. And then from a risk vulnerability perspective, you're holding on to a lot more assets that uh, have potential exposure for you. So it, it's oh, a real challenge. Uh, the, the OT space is a really tricky one. The The threat is so is so large. You know, we see a um, you know a dam, you know, um, um, you know, open its floodgates. Right? There's loss of life. There's major loss of life there, or, or power, power, power generation, and and things. And and so the risk is really large. And uh, and then on the flip side, that uh, the technology is can be antiquated, and and the past software patching isn't isn't very well done. And the reason is that they have to keep up time. Those turbines on that dam better keep spinning, and you, you can't reboot a dam, right? So patching, uh, uh, patching is old, and, and the swapping out of technology for more modern uh, software and hardware is uh, has operational risk and costs, you know, quite a bit more than a regular enterprise. So, so you've got a double whammy: big risk, good targets for adversaries, lots of potential for damage. And then, um, you know, it's really hard to protect. It's really hard to patch and, and bring up the speed because of the operational necessity. You got to keep these things running. So, boy, that's a scary one. And then when we get to talking about what scares me in 2023, it's, it's, it's always that. It's, my response is always, uh, I worry about our infrastructure. I worry about power, utilities, wastewater treatment plants, dams, you know, hospitals, you know, yeah, that those are the things that keep me up at night, among other things. Yeah. Well, tell me this, being a data science guy yourself, I mean, how, how do you see companies starting to look at machine learning, deep learning within your security stack? Is there a play here to see some of these vulnerabilities or be like, to manage them before they come? I, I hear from a lot, of, um, a lot of chief information security officers, a lot of directors, they're being asked, by their board of just uh, an AI or machine learning readiness assessment. Like, yeah. how do we utilize this? How can we use this new technology? But because they're, they're being asked, how do, how do you utilize this? And they really don't have strong answers for that. Yeah, It's kind of nebulous. And so they turn to security providers like us at Deep, Deep Seas and go, can you do an AI readiness assessment? Just kind of give some insight. Where, where can I use... Uh, this, where does it benefit? And then you look at their ecosystem, you kind of look at what they're trying to provide and then give some assertions uh, towards that. But I mean, what are your thoughts on, uh, you, you keep hearing the terms for deep learning or artificial intelligence, and it just seems to be um, smart algorithms in many ways, but what are your kind of your thought um, around how you would go approaching bringing machine learning into an environment uh, to maybe assist in this area? Yeah. So, I mean, so this is my bread and butter. I, I, uh, 23 years, I almost got as many as you, Josh, um, in doing machine learning and data science for cybersecurity. That's my bread and butter. In fact, in the old days, they didn't call me a data scientist, right? That only came around in 2015, but I was doing this kind of work in 2000 for the government. So, so I've got strong opinions and a bias here. Um, this is not new for me. This is what I do. Um, 
And so the first thing I'll say is there's a ton of hype. Um, we're in the peak of the hype cycle. Um, there, these are not magic bullets. Um, they're even if you can get them um, um, operating well, because you have worked very hard on your data and the data quality um, uh, and the pipelines, and you have smart people like my team, not me, but my team, uh, who who can actually develop these kind of uh, tools and use them. Um, even if you do all of that right, these don't produce smoking guns and they don't solve your cybersecurity problem. They're e even the most sophisticated things we have out there, like ChatGPT, which is a fantastic technology. OpenAI is a fantastic company and, and large language models are one of the cutting edge um, uh, new things to come out in this, in this decade. I think this is going to change the game. Even that is only assistive technology. Okay, ChatGPT won't write a, um, a beautiful poem. It won't, um, you know, correctly summarize, um, you know, a complex uh, financial statement or, or, or write the next Gettysburg Address. It's, it, it's smart enough to accelerate humans in writing the Gettysburg Address. I think uh, Lincoln, you know, wouldn't have been, you know, would have been helped by uh, Chad GPT in writing the Gettysburg, perhaps, although that's a quite a nice uh, speech. It's just not um, capable of human level creativity and, and subtlety. Um, and, and there's many, you know, you can go online and find tons of examples where ChatGPT just was ridiculous. It just didn't make any sense at all. You can actually teach it to do math wrong. It'll, if you teach it enough, it'll say that nine plus four is, is 15 instead of wow. whatever it is. I can't remember what nine plus four is. Sure. So, so, you know, that's why, so the first point is that these things are not, are, are not magic bullets. Um, I would say that you know, you want to get your ducks in a row in really fundamental ways before you bring in machine learning or or, or deep learning. Um, second, you you need your data needs to be of high quality, and garbage in, garbage out is is extremely true for machine learning. Um, what it's able to do in general, uh, I just make general statements is is well, generalize um, from specific examples. So the, the first example we saw in, in security was, uh, was supervised machine learning applied to malware. You have a million examples of malicious software. You have a million examples of benign software. You show the machine with labels. You tell it, this is a bad piece of software and this is a good one and here's a million of each. And it can... Um, generalize from the specifics of any one of those examples in order to find software, malicious software, which is similar in its behavior to the examples you gave it. But what it's not going to do is go find some completely different piece of malware that isn't represented at all in, in, in the training set. It can't create out of thin air um, you know, the knowledge required to identify something quite new or quite different from what it was trained on. 
So garbage in, garbage out. That means the first thing to do if you want to utilize machine learning in your in your um, detection stack, you better have good data. You need to work on your data and get it at high quality. It needs to be representative of future attacks. It needs to, re you know, and so that's where anomaly detection comes in. So with supervised machine learning, we tell it examples. With unsupervised machine learning, you don't have to say that's bad and that's good. What you do instead is say, here's a bunch of data, learn what it what what's normal about it, and then identify rare uh, behavior within that uh, according to what you've taught it is normal. And that's quite good because actually in a lot of post-breach settings, we don't have labeled data. We don't, you know, after you get past the malware, we don't have a giant pile of here's what the attacker did, you know, examples. And <laughs> so uh, in that setting, um, you know, anomaly detection becomes more powerful in that it doesn't need any labeled data. But on the other hand, and it's always trade-offs, right? On the other hand, what anomaly detection is gonna do is discover rare stuff um, um, this is, this is unusual with respect to this behavior, this user's behavior. Let's say they logged into a new machine that you've never seen before is really weird with respect to how they normally behave, or maybe it's a weird time of day or, um, or they ran a piece of software or accessed a yeah. file, you know, and, and yet rarity. And so I think we can admit that attacks are rare. And attackers introduce rare behavior in the enterprise. So that's good. If we can find rare behavior, then maybe we can find attacks. But the problem is that there's a lot of rare behavior that's not an attack. And if you put 100,000 humans under monitoring and extract what they're doing and their, and their operating systems and the things they log into, you're going to see weird stuff a lot because humans are weird. They do weird stuff a lot. Hard to predict. Right. And yet it's not malicious. So really rare um, attacks are a subset of rare behavior and a really small one. And what that means is that if you only rely on um, rarity to find attack behavior, you're going to see false positives all day long. Mm -hmm. So the real, so the, so then the real, gold it, what we found is very successful is to use anomaly detection in the context of attack behaviors so you may have an alert you have the alert it was generated by i don't know a firewall rule let's say that's not exactly ai right that's more of a logical statement you know if the port is x and the number of bytes is y you know alert it'll have it'll be it's fairly specific you can know that when it alerts, it's going to find what you're looking for. Mm. Um, but then you miss the, you know, anything that's kind of like it, but not exactly that thing. You haven't encoded it. And that's where if you tie the rules with rare behavior to say, not only was this, you know, um, a, a strange incoming network uh, traffic, but then the, the user account associated with that machine did something rare and attaching the rarity to some known bad allows you to kind of extend out. So I think my point, and that was kind of a rambling example. My point is 
machine learning AI needs to be used in very careful ways with experts in combination with traditional security and leveraging its strengths, um, but also knowing that it has weaknesses too. And, and I think defense in depth or a doctrine of, you know, lots of different um, sort of visibility, alerting, you know, mm -hmm. mitigation is going to be more powerful. The sum of uh, it's larger than the sum of the parts. Um, and so, you know, I think I'm, I'm trying to say be cautious with it. It's going to be powerful um, in, in, in ways that you really have to understand it. Don't go by, you know, the latest flashy thing without the skills and expertise to, to really bring it to, to, to effectiveness. And, and it's a delicate process. So I guess from a use case perspective, what would be kind of the first ones I should look for? I know like the Superman yeah. scripting where you're logging on from Germany and then all of a sudden he's logging on from mm -hmm. Japan. There's no way that's possible unless you're Superman. So I know those those type of time-based authentication issues that find anomalies, but then you have infrastructure that throws that off. You have people at VPN in and all of a sudden they're coming out of some other part of the infrastructure. And, and so that's yeah. positive in that regard. So I guess what you're trying to say is that we still need the detection analytics, so the logic in order to yeah. find bad activity, but then tag on the behavioral aspect of it that'll say, not only do I think this activity is malicious that we look for, but also it oh, this kind of pattern over time. And so you have another dimension of just what the activity of the behavior looks like. It's more context. It's more actionable understanding for the SOC to use in order to, to know they have an attack in the first place and then know what to do in terms of mitigation and, and um, you know, incident response. So I think you got it exactly right. Yeah. If I was if I was to be running a SOC, I wouldn't use, say, a land speed violation, right, which is this, they logged in from Germany and then, you know, uh, the Philippines in a short period of time. I wouldn't rely on those kinds of things as my frontline defense. I would use those kind of things as additional context. I would make sure that there was attached to that some more evidence that was more concrete um, in order to, to flesh out the attacks more fully. You know, we're, we're really focused in decision support not decision-making. There aren't any smoking guns here with, with machine learning. There are additional contexts, additional anomalies, uh, uh, you know, the glue, um, say, lateral movement. You know, you have an alert on this machine, you have an alert on that machine, and you have an anomalous communication between the two machines. Okay, that's additional context to kind of glue things together. So, yeah, I think you have it exactly right. Don't trust the AI by itself. Mm. glue it together with your with your more confident um logic-based detectors and and don't expect it to be autonomously solving cybersecurity for you what well, let me ask you this so um being somebody who went and, and spent five years in the marine corps so i understand what it takes to have discipline and training for something do you foresee a discipline and a training for ai i mean how do you prevent your ai from getting bullied how do you prevent uh, erroneous data being fed to it, and, yeah. and how, how do you how do you protect and harden AI? Um, mm. I don't even know how you start with that. Yeah, you, and you do, and and uh, companies like Microsoft are um, um, forming, and Google are are forming research teams. And there's a new there's a new field of data science called adversarial machine learning, in which um, you know you can 
um, specifically give the machine, if you will, or the algorithm um, inf uh, data, which is meant to confuse it. And, it, you know, here's a secret for you. Mo much of machine learning is about drawing lines between data points in some high dimensional space. It's actually kind of a curve, but in some high dimensional space, you're just drawing lines to try to separate data into two classes, bad and good. And you have a line between them. And that's what the machine learning really is. And even deep learning really is this very complex, this what we call decision surface. What adversarial AI does is try to give the machine points that are really close to that decision line, where it's really confused about whether it's bad. And if, if you have these online systems that are learning from the data that's coming in, you can cause the machine to learn incorrect um, inputs. And then what the adversary does is then they can fly under the radar. Then they once they've trained the defensive system with adversarial inputs, they can they they have more room to flex to get in there in the margins and fly under the radar. Um, and big companies uh, like Microsoft are investing. I'm, I'm not doing a sales pitch for Microsoft, but I'm impressed by their investments in um, in in adversarial machine learning. In that um, they have whole teams spinning up. There's whole you know research conferences on advers adversarial machine learning. I, from a statistical I've been pretty impressed point, with, I've been impressed, yeah. impressed with Microsoft lately. The ATP yeah. product at first, when that first rolled out, Defender, we're really worried about anything security-wise coming from Microsoft. I mean, been in the field 20 years. Yeah. Microsoft was one of the main reasons we had so many security problems. <laughs> but just to see how we've deployed ATP at some of the biggest companies in the world now, and just to see how it goes in at first, it has to stabilize, how it learns, how we have a bunch of learning at first and how it settles in. And just, I've been really impressed with Microsoft Defender. Not that we're not impressed with CrowdStrike and FireEye and, and Carbon Black and a number of them, but just recently, just to see Microsoft turn it around uh, and actually start deplacing, displacing other EDR vendors because uh, their product works so well on uh, Microsoft Defender. I think that's just a testament to what y'all have done in the past. So congratulations. Well, that's very nice. That, that's nice to hear. You know, I'm proud and I'm proud of the team and the people that are still there. I'm proud to know them. Um, Microsoft around, you know, a little bit early. I started it uh, in, in uh, the beginning of 2018 and just about then and a little bit before that, they really started investing. Um, and, you know, I ultimately credit Satya who has, made decisions the ceo has made some really smart decisions one of them was microsoft could really be a powerful cybersecurity vendor uh and with you know they could stop kind of messing around with free software deployed on commercial machine on consumer machines and get real serious about enterprise security and so i was part of a wave of um talent that came in uh, so proud to be a part of it, and they are a force to be reckoned with. They they are proud and and competent researchers. Um, you know, some of the best in the world. So, yeah, I, I agree with you, and I'm I'm a little bit biased. Good, good. Well, just to kind of switch topics for you, going to topic number two here. We had uh, I, I showed you this article on the Forbes top ten. So this is what Forbes yeah. magazine came out as the top ten cybersecurity trends for 2023. 
I was going to go to the list of 10 here and then stop on a few and kind of talk to you about that and see what your thoughts are. I know a lot of the uh, sisters we're dealing with, the directors, they're they're putting their budgets, their strategies, their plans together. They've already kind of have in several ways, um, but really want to be able to focus and align it. And they, of course, get asked by their board and, and the C-suite different areas that they hear. And so I thought we would at least take this top 10 trend and see what is that match what I'm seeing in the real world, that match what you're seeing in the real world, kind of go from there. Does, does that make sense, Josh? Sounds good, Josh. All right. So the number one we have is cybersecurity talent drought will be much worse. Um, I don't think we have any disagreement in that area. Uh, I think cybersecurity talent is going to continue to move. I do think we're probably going to get to the point where a lot of the low-level level one analysis is done through some machine learning module. It's not as much a personnel scaling perspective um, I think you still need to have trained individuals to understand what this means, what that means, but to have people who are doing low-level alerting and correlation and so forth, I think it's just going to be less. But um, I've seen some really cool companies from not just a um, recruiting perspective, but u- using behavioral models to interview people and to figure what their skill sets match towards. Do they have the analytical skills to match towards a a uh, security analyst or incident responder or something to that effect. And how does that match to the job requirements? So I've seen some really some cool areas in that. But well, what are your thoughts about the cybersecurity drought and uh, what can most companies do about it? Yeah, I mean, you, you, you stole my thunder a little bit. I, I, I do think that automation in various ways, whether it's machine learning or we're just making the right data pipes and, and automated um, um, things, Getting rid of a lot of false positives, <laughs> okay, that that analysts have to deal with on a daily basis is gonna. Right, this is time out of their day, right? A false positive is is a cost for the SOC and vendors um, uh, and the SOC itself uh, can benefit, can kind of relieve the the talent drought by getting rid of false positives, mm-hmm. and it's not easy. But um, I think focusing on reduced reduced uh, alert volumes um, will help, and that that's kind of in that the net result, and it's kind of one of the missions I've been on in terms of uh, machine learning and security has been to uplift the sophistication of the SOC. So yes, the tier one mon- somewhat mundane sort of alert response um, role, it's. It's not a fun role. There's a lot of attrition in that role, and it's it's the, uh, a sweet spot for automation. You know, I think that's probably yeah um, going away. I think a lot of people would like to see that go away. Yeah. Well, what's I- left? What's left though is the really hard stuff. Right? It's the machines can't figure out, and so I think that the that the while we may relieve some of the sheer numbers that are required to operate a security program. We're also gonna have to ensure that the that the ones that are left are quite skilled because the, the things that we can't solve with automation and machine learning are gonna be all the hard stuff, all the really hard, you know, vague and subtle uh, pieces of evidence that have to be put together, mm. you know, so. Well, and I think that's um, one of the specialties of uh, the company I work for right now. So it's Deep Seas. And we have this hybrid managed SOC function in which we have people that are kind of on the ground or acting in a staff hog role. But we use managing detection response uh, 24 by 7 staff in order to do the level one, level two triage. 
And what we find out is a lot of people are moving towards that model because it's easy to outsource that 24 by 7 uh, level one, level two analysis there, focus on determining what of these alerts are true positives, forwarding the true positives on to the incident response team that's locally for them to be able to action on it. And it gives them a clear, concise method to say, hey, somebody's looked at all this alerting that I see here. We've already gone through it, uh, 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 used our tradecraft against it. Uh, these are the things that we think are important to you to follow up on. So it's a lot less of a volume. And when we see a lot of companies um, wanting to move in that model, that's why that Cyber Fusion Center model has been so successful for us, really because it allows the company to continue to do what they do well, which is manufacture, hospital, oil and gas. We do a lot of pharma clients uh, and so forth. So it allows them to do their business while we can bring our expertise at scale to address some of the challenges that they have in these different areas. Yeah. I think with the bigger companies, when they figure out that when they finally come to the conclusion, they can't do this on their own. They just can't grow a team to do this. It's highly expensive to do that. So why not leverage companies that have skill sets and they've done it from a platform and scale perspective. Mm-hmm. So what will happen, what, what I think is an advantage for myself is that I, well, we have around 260 clients around the world. Out of them, there's probably 15, 20 big enterprises uh, that I sit on their um, the QBRs. I sit on all the IR, um, qu- quarterly business reviews. We meet with the, the customer and so forth. So I understand what's happening in their environment from the technology that they use to um, to the, the threats that they face and, and so forth. That kind of analysis or that kind of experience of seeing all that really allows us to opine on this is what we're seeing. This is kind of that Beth method for deployment and delivery. And it really is kind of pulling that level one, level two SOC IR analyst out of the the company using a managed detection response entity that can do that. That's seeing, okay, well, that alert came across in that client and, and in this one over here, and they were both false positives. Why why can't I use that as historical information to tell me this this same alert that's coming from customer C, high probability of false positive? I put that into a different analysis for queuing, or I can auto-respond to some of them. I think it's really saying what is the security threshold for the client. So if I'm a highly regulated environment, I want action on everything, I'm going to jack that up. I'm going to want um, uh, more verbosity of, of things coming in. If not, I want less of it. And I think companies just want to get where something is actionable and they can uh, have a weekend or a night to themselves without something. You know? <laughs> yeah. They want to, they want to make shoes or, or cars or, or, you know, whatever their business is. Right. And, you know, I think you had a great point and, and the, the point, it's an interesting thing is that managed security uh, has something in common with sort of security vendors like, like Securonix in that, we can concentrate cyber talent and we can concentrate cyber knowledge um, that we learn across all our customers yeah. in order to protect any one customer. And that, and that's a, that's a value proposition that the customer themselves can't, can't actually do. Right. So, so it makes sense to consolidate talent. Let us be good at cyber and you can be good at, making shoes uh, or, or cars or whatever. So I, I think that lesson, and that lesson translates both to the human talent that we can hire as a managed service provider, no. as well as the technology that we can develop. Like I can, as you kind of suggested is, you know, with machine learning, I can automatically use a lot of data from a lot of different tenants, or a lot of different customers 
mm. to to gain model capabilities that help protect each of those customers better than if I only saw one tenant's data, right? So I can I can make models that benefit from all the customer all the customers' data in order to protect each one of them. And, yeah. and that's a, that's something that any one customer couldn't do unless they had some kind of exchange. And I think that's where Threat Intel also play, plays a role. And open source Intel is another way to kind of aggregate knowledge and provide it to everybody. You know, so so I would include Threat Intel as, as in that same well, vein. And let me ask you the next ones here. So number two and number three, kind of what related supply chain attacks will be commoditized, and then the death and rebirth of cyber insurance. I mean, I think. Mm commoditized uh, supply chains here just during the pandemic, just the pandemic itself impacted mm. supply chains uh, significantly. You throw cyber into that, then you go back to Colonial Pipeline, how our gas prices went up just because of that ransomware attack that was there. And then how cyber insurance companies are realizing, hey, I'm, I'm paying out all over the place. I need to have some better standards on uh, protection and, and clauses. And I think there's always a fear that you get the wrong policy with the wrong stipulation. And then somehow you have an event and it doesn't cover anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's always been a challenge. But at the same time, we're seeing that is part of supply chain risk. We Supply chain risk, too, of having third parties and fourth parties or a third party to a third party that's outsourced mm-hmm. to a fourth party. And it gets so complicated and complex. And, and there's so many cloud interfaces and APIs it's really hard to tell where one vendor ends and the next one begins, right? Or, or really how far to, do you go down the rabbit hole? Sure what, are, what are your thoughts on the supply chain and, and death and rebirth of cyber insurance? So with, with supply chain, I think maybe the attacks are becoming commoditized, but in, in as is typical with this, the defenses behind the attack of the offense and, and the, maybe the cyber attacks are being commoditized but the defense is not, it's still very manual and still very difficult to kind of break apart your supply chain and know where your risk is coming from. So, so I think we have a lot to do. I mean, I think with number two, with supply chain cyber attacks, I think we have to, as a, as the defensive industry do a lot more work in even just quantifying risk from the supply chain, let alone mitigating it and 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 protecting for it. I think that's going to be one of the, you know, Forbes is telling us that the attackers are being commoditized. Well, the defense isn't. We need to we need to be working real hard um, in the next year. Yeah. Cyber insurance. Cyber insurance is a very interesting subject for me. I'm a statistician, right? And I'm also a cyber guy. And so cyber insurance is kind of like, yeah, that feels like an interesting place for me. But then when I look at what they're doing, and I don't mean to criticize, but an enterprise is such a complex animal. It's not even, it's, it's much more complex than a car. And cars are kind of, you know, well instrumented. These days you have, you know, kind of flight recorders, right, that can quantify risk during the driving itself and the operation of it itself. And I think that's where we need to head with cyber insurance. You know, you can't give a company a questionnaire and expect that you actually really understand the risk and can quantify the risk for that company. I mean, yes, they're going to need two-factor authentication. They're going to need firewall. They, you know, the questionnaire will cover the, the known yeah, things you can tick off with a box, but I'm what I'm not seeing are 
And I'm also seeing that insurance companies are requiring um, kind of external web scans. So there are companies that will come and scan, you know, your external APIs, you know, to find vulnerabilities. That's a good start because that's really data driven. It's it's really it's not about somebody taking a survey, but it's really kind of really checking whether there there is risk there. I think we need to extend that inside the enterprise. What is what's going into their sim? What are the and and I'm talking about like the real data, like go and and analyze 30 days of the cat of the telemetry that the company is capturing. Look at their coverage. Their, their, and then look at their and maybe run some, some uh, attack simulations in red team. And now we might be able to quantify the risk in a way that is um, insurable without a ton of risk to the insurance company itself. So I think it's really smart for them to say death and rebirth, but I'm, I'm still not seeing the level of, of, um, of data analysis required to give me confidence that I'm underwriting well if I was a if, if I was an insurer an insurer yeah. I, I still don't think they're looking at enough data to really be confident of, of their of their underwriting well that's why I think that rebirth part of that's coming when I look at the rest of the list here so just four down to ten so what they have is number four is more smart devices more risk they're saying number five cyber attacks will cost lives you actually yeah. see death from it uh, number six is you just have those oh wow moments. Um, we'll put disaster recovery in the forefront again, where I think a lot of disaster recovery programs um, kind of halted or atrophied when we went to cloud because a lot of things, oh, it's in the cloud. They handle it. Amazon handles, Azure handles, whatever. And there was just a lot, a lot, uh, a lot less focus on disaster recovery and a more of it's someone else's. Uh, problem. But just continuing to, to go down, number seven, machine learning AI tools continue to get, change the game of cybersecurity. Got number eight, more cyber uh, cyber criminals in the slammer. So they're predicting more people will actually get arrested and, and thrown in jail. Um, I won't hold my breath on that one. Uh, you don't see that every night. Here's America's best one. He's, a, he's in a hacker and he's malicious. I mean, you just don't see it, right? So uh, until I start seeing large numbers of cyber criminals go to jail, I don't know. Then uh, tables will turn. Cybercrime will hit international companies in China and Russia. Uh, I think there's pretty much, you see sort of a moratorium. I think you see some ransomware providers that have kill switches if it's a Russian IP address space. Uh, so you know they're very hesitant about attacking uh, kind of China and Russia where they kind of have a free reign. But what it's saying is that the tides are turned here and they think uh, uh, inside China they're going to get hit. There's going to be a, a complete reversal of that. And then number 10 was just quantum quantum, uh, quantum computing to make a debut. All right, let me just start with number 10. What is quantum computing going to make a debut in cybersecurity? Well, you can you can use quantum computers to break passwords. I think that's the biggest thing uh, that's coming is that uh, these computers operate much faster than uh, silicon and therefore you know, uh, something, a brute force attack to break a password on um, on a, a traditional compute, you know, CPU, you know, with electrons and stuff instead of, of um, light uh, is going to take, you know, a hundred years. But with a quantum computer, it's, it's in a matter of minutes. Mm -hmm. And so the whole of cryptography kind of rests on, you know, encryption kind of rests on 
on the breaking of, of uh, on the on the fact that it takes a long time for a traditional computer to break a password to unencrypt. Uh, when I say break passwords, I mean decrypt an encrypted uh, um, piece of data. Um, you know, for for a while now, we've been aware that we shouldn't rely only on one way to protect our information. Um, you know, and and uh, passwords themselves to to authenticate. Um, we know they're they're broken. It's not enough, and it's 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 frankly just not a very effective passwords. So, uh, um, <laughs> I'm gonna do a little science fiction with you, Josh. Let me, let me dream a little bit. We can. We can do continuous authentication. Should you have access to this data in a continuous way or a semi-continuous way, a nearly continuous, nearly real-time way? And it, it basically means, are you still the person we think you are? Should you still be looking at this data over and over, asking that over and over? And if and how do we ask that question? Well, I think it's through behavioral sorts of means. Are are you still um, typing in the same kind of timing that we expect? Are you moving the mouse around in the same way that we used to see you moving around? Um, are you going to the same website? A full scope kind of behavioral look at the human behind the data is going to be the way that we can start to protect information in lieu of passwords. And and you know um, you know I don't think crypto is going to going to be in the way it's done today is going to be viable in and I don't know what the timeline is I think these things quantum computing to make a debut what they're saying is yeah it's coming but you know it's been coming for 20 years 30 years so we don't have to freak out right now but we better start investing especially at the national level at the government level in ways to in ways to protect information that don't rely on at least modern cryptography because yeah. it's, that's not going to work. So, so just, I think we do need to be doing some science fiction here because this one's a game changer for sure. Well, it's definitely not put in charge of the missile systems around here. I mean, when you three here, we have artificial intelligence, quantum computing, right. Is, is being uh, uh, kind of one of, one of those out there. And so we just have these real groundbreaking type technologies that we have to kind of deal with chat GPT. Yeah. Right. And, and how would yeah. that be used in the future? Um, I think that's all going to be big. A lot of companies are really asking, um, you know, some of these questions related to uh, what do I do about that? I mean, uh, I would say in a lot of cases like quantum and all, it's really nice to talk about that, but there's nothing really actionable to do where I would see machine learning AI really is something actual to do. You could do those kind of readiness assessment, or you can do some of the training and development or use some consultants to figure out what you can do. It's not something where you just go into the Azure store and hit install, uh, install some app from the Azure store and you're off and running. Um, so what you're saying is a lot more thought about it, a lot more, um, uh, you know, thought needs to go into it, but that, that you should be looking at these and we should be understanding how to use machine learning more in the detection phase of cyber threat management, um, we're just nobody's really doing it really well just yet. I mean, I mean, yeah, I, you know, companies. Uh, yeah, I think you're right, and I, I uh, companies like Securonix are beginning to offer, um, and we have an incubation now that a 
I'll give you a little a little precursor for which is that um, we're we're offering or, or incubating um, environments for detection engineering and data scientists to build their own detection policies or rules or or uh, detectors um, using machine learning and you know this comes in the form of you got some you got an environment with Python um, so you kind of need Python skills at this point to kind of use these tools and you've got some spark backends where you can run big jobs and then we're building kind of built-in tool you know notebooks really these these toolboxes to accelerate the building of of machine learning based solutions where you don't have to have a degree in, in statistics we're going to give you the code to 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 kind of glue together you know in order to form your 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 new detectors um, and so I think there's things that vendors like we like Securonix can do um, to accelerate that and to kind of uh, lower the bar so that um, any one customer, you know, doesn't need uh, extreme levels of talent or, you know, education to get to get the use of these. But but it's still going to be, yeah, you got to have some Python skills. You got to understand kind of big data computing. You know, I think of. The the birth of the term detection engineering, which is kind of a new term, it's only been a few years of that that term. That engineering sort of thing is is consistent with my feeling that we're gonna see an uplift in the sophistication of of security operations. But the simple things are are gonna be solved for, and you need people that have coding skills that understand computing in order to do the hard hard work. And I so I think that that's it's kind of the meeting in the middle of the vendors trying to help out and make things easy, but also you, you know, your skills need to come up and your, your stock needs to have some Python and some kind of big data understanding as well. So. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then I see uh, there was this report out by this industry report we had uh, from October of 2022, just saying that most uh, MSPs, 75% of MSPs are planning to invest in security and threat intelligence services I think that's um, it, it looks like there's a huge push for understanding what more actionable intelligence and I, I don't mean tactical intelligence like uh, the IOCs that are coming off of a tip, but more of strategic. I'm, I'm going to move into a new geo or I am going to merge with this company and take on these different locations. What is the real risk of that? Uh, what, how does the attacker landscape change? What do I need to account for and that kind of stuff? Mm -hmm. So I, I see there's more of a, I would like a threat Intel person that is helping me quantify risk more than someone who's just telling me this bad guy did this bad thing. Isn't it bad? Um, mm -hmm. uh, not to mention that the distribute of IOCs have to nine are not always that very effective. And then how do you use that data? Uh, what are the, what are the streams? How actionable is that? And and what is your output for for it? I mean, and, and a lot of times is the output of your tactical intelligence is that part of uh, tool enhancement for correlation of threats, or um, is that more post exploitation after the fact? You run a bunch of IOCs over a data lake and and you look for things. So it's as we see different combinations of different things. We have some of our customers are not very keen on the benefits of threat intelligence um and and when to use it to them they view it as just some feed that comes into an appliance and it, it's far from that uh i think there's a lot less people focus on attack surface reduction and more on like vulnerability management and the difference is vulnerability management you have like qualis or one of those scanners 
and you scan a whole range of IP address and it comes back and tells you which ones are vulnerable, which ones should be patched and, and so forth. And it's really specific. And uh, like if you use Microsoft versions, it only has the Microsoft doesn't have uh, all the vulnerabilities for every product you're out there. But a lot of times they use that as infrastructure risk management. So some guy and the router jockey guys will see there's an iOS vulnerability and then, okay, that'll be part of my next patch cycle. So they kind of looked at it as software or hardware maintenance, but they didn't view it from the, the perspective of these vulnerabilities are exactly what the attackers are seeing and using and trying to exploit anyway. Um, which ones are the most easy for them to do that? Which ones should you focus on? Uh, out of all of them that there, should you focus on remediation or um, mitigation? Uh, so so what are you kind of your options there? And I just see some companies have not made the leap from risk-based attack surface reduction, and they're still in that vulnerability management type stage. Mm-hmm. I just want to be able to close vulnerabilities and tickets. Um, and what we're seeing a lot in, in these environments is that combination those, of those two points that threat intelligence combined with attack surface reduction is we're just seeing is just uh, tremendously beneficial. The amount of incidents we have go down at client sites because there's less surface to actual exploit. So we have less noise in the environment. So that means true positives come up better. We have a lot less false negatives uh, and false positives that come up. And and so I think it's really once you get your environment, you were saying before to get your data clean, make sure your data models are clean. And and being an infrastructure guy, I'm like, well, make sure your your PCs are are clean and they're standard. Mm-hmm. And you have a gold image, and uh, we don't have one version of Adobe on one machine. And then you did a different image, and it's all a different version. And then I got this other merger, has got another version, and just the life cycle management of IT makes it extremely hard for cybersecurity guys to keep up. And if we could just adhere to some standards, uh, you know, just like, for instance, in these mergers and acquisitions, a bank will say, it may be cheaper for me just to take over all this old computers that they have here and just make it work. And I can save the money instead of replacing the hardware. And they have no idea how two years later that impacts everything because you have all this <laughs> old stuff that you there's no money to replace it now. Now it's just part of the infrastructure. So I, I call it being a penny wise, pound foolish. Great. Yeah. You saved a few pennies on not replacing the desktop, but you cause us nothing from but pain in, in the in the in the future. And our ability to scale and do it without 50 different products and use a smaller tool set really is impacted. Because if they could have just built new on what the standard was and just replace all the old desktops, replace all the old network equipment, put new according to the standard is it's more expensive from a capital perspective. But later on the management is seamless. It matches everything else that you you do. It's the one-offs that really cause cybersecurity oh, a hard time. Tell me about that. And I, I, I resonate a lot with that because it, I would like to write a detector that just says, if this isn't standard, alert. Yeah. <laughs> but but if I did that with many enterprise sort of behaviors, yeah, I would be alerting all the time. Everything's non-standard. Yeah. Um. You you know. One uh, attack behavior that we see a lot is that the that the attacker will um, instantiate a new account. They'll they'll, they'll make it you know make a new uh, uh, domain account, let's say, and or they'll stand up a new IP address. That's even better example. They'll they'll get a new IP address so that they can do some whatever they run a virtual machine or whatever, and we can model new. Right, we can, and a lot of times new is bad. Right, the the intersection of newness and badness is large. We 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 see new bad a lot, 
And I'd like to write a detector that just said, yeah, if it's new, it's bad, right? But you can't do that. Um, so what we can do though, is if they have a gold image, um, when, when they instantiate a new IP address, then the software, the operating system, let's say it's Windows, it'll go, it'll do a certain standard set of behaviors as it boots up for the first time. It'll go register with the domain controllers and, yeah, I don't know, um, access these five services and run those four processes. And there's a, you know, and it's very amenable to modeling. Yeah. And then we can say, you know, this new IP address doesn't look like, the standard gold startup process and we can alert on that and we're pretty confident it's bad but if you don't have that standardization then and a gold standard then that doesn't work then you you know you got users standing up machines yeah. all over the place and, and, it, and then your stock is buried with false positives and i guess it's hard too when you're seeing it's it's not so surprising it's stolen credentials account for 61 percent of all breaches it's also further reported that the account that led to the breach and subsequent ransomware attacks didn't have multi-factor authentication placed on it. That seems to be a key towards it. There's always a credential theft, uh, and nine times out of ten doesn't seem to have password authentication, multi-factor. In fact, we saw some attacks on Azure from some of our customers' password stuffing, and it was password stuffing attacks against legacy protocols. So in, in Azure, you can go into the Azure portal, and you can see POP3 IMAP4 to support uh, applications like uh, the app that's on your iPhone. Um, and what we're seeing is they're using ActiveSync to brute force attack those passwords. And of course, it doesn't lock it out because there's no MFA enable. You can't do MFA right. on, on top of the legacy protocols. And so Microsoft, as we saw these attacks coming out, we saw Microsoft saying they were going to deprecate legacy protocol support in Azure. And so you can see how that it, that impacts your ability to migrate over when you were using mm -hmm. those legacy protocols. And, and so I think those really get complicated as we move forward. And then, um, you know, just trying to quantify this in a world of budget reductions and which one mm -hmm. do you focus on and which ones don't you and and so forth. That And then having this, this war, this Russian-Ukraine uh, conflict, I mean, how does that kind of change in many ways, the scope of things. I mean, we, we see in some cases, a lot of the attackers are preoccupied with Ukraine mm -hmm. and, and that area as if they were subcontracted or they're all engaged in activities as part of that war. And they're less engaged in commercial espionage or in commercial um, cybercrime, even though it's still there. It just seems to be as if their their head is focused in that other direction for some Yeah, and a lot of a lot of the ransomware groups that we were dealing with and do you remember ransomware became a very big deal in 2021 or maybe 2020 yeah maybe 2020 or even 2019 and it was coming out of eastern europe like that was that's what they did right and 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 i think i've also seen um a reduction in in sort of ransomware attacks on our customers because yeah and the 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 I guess inference without me having the kind of access to be able to know this is yeah those those folks are busy attacking each other over there in Eastern Europe yeah um, I think we also see I mean th these things don't go away and and those those folks are learning stuff yeah you know in war you're well you hone your skills or you die right so mm -hmm. I expect that that uh, coming out of that conflict we're going to see more sophisticated attacks put up against our uh, against 
the rest of the, the world. Yeah, and well. I agree with you. And unfortunately, we're out of time, Josh. I so much want to thank you for joining us. I mean, I I, uh, I think it was fascinating and interesting, and I think there's just so much more we could dive into. Uh, coming up next on our next episode, we're going to dive into the world of threat intelligence. Uh, we have a number of people that work uh, work with me at Deep Seas and and other parts of the industry, and we pull them together. In the next episode, we're going to kind of talk what threat intel looks like in an enterprise, what is good, what is bad, what are a lot of people focused on, uh, what can you do from some short wins perspective. Uh, what are some things that have been confusing in the industry, some terms, some technologies, other, other people have used that kind of confuse you. So we're going to have a number of our threat analysts over there, one of our chief threat guys, uh, on next episode, and we'll cover that. And just want to thank you again, Josh, and everybody. I will catch you soon. Thank you very much for joining in. You have a good evening. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cybersecurity America on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you've learned some valuable information to help you be a better executive leader and navigate today's complex world of cybersecurity. Until next week, stay secure. Thank you.